If you would this morning, please open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 3. We made it through chapter 2 last week, and we saw John warn about Satan's deceptions that are still to come. We also saw what a protection God's word can be against those deceptions. Now, quick pop quiz for you this morning. Chapters 1 and 2 focus on what? Fellowship. Chapters 3 through 5 will focus on what? Sonship. Okay, and you'll hear that again and again. Uh, The first half is dealing with fellowship. The second half is dealing with sonship or being born of God. And we'll see John emphasize this phrase, born of God, in chapter 3. In other words, he's emphasizing sonship. Are we born into God? We'll see the phrase born of God in each of these last three chapters. Besides being told by your pastor or your Sunday school teacher to obey God, why do you obey God? You know, it's a fair question. We always talk about obeying God, but why do we actually do that? Well, in chapter three, John informs the believer that the true child of God will prove his or her spiritual birth by being obedient to God's word. He gives five motives for our obedience. Number one, God's wonderful love. Two, Christ's promised return. Three, Christ's death on the cross. Four, the new nature within. And five, the witness of the Spirit. Now, I've hoped that you've noticed at this point in 1 John that John loves to repeat himself. And I ask that you pay careful attention to these motives in chapter 3 because he's going to repeat them. He's going to use these same motives um, in chapter 4 to describe why the child of God loves. So I'll read the, the five motives one more time for you. You can jot them down if you're taking notes. One, God's wonderful love. Two, Christ's promised return. Three, Christ's death on the cross. Four, the new nature within. Five, the witness of the Spirit. So these are all things that we're going to see this morning uh, pointing to why the Christian obeys God. Verse 1 in 1 John chapter 3, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. What manner of love? John is literally writing, what foreign kind of love? And truly it is foreign to us as humans. Um, We do not inherently know this kind of love. It's from out of our world. Truly, it is out of this world. This agape love. It's self-sacrificial and it's unconditional. It takes uh, no concern of conditions. It is self-sacrificing. And this is the love that God showed us. Behold, he's saying, look at this. Gaze upon this foreign type of love that the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Now, this is 
unconditional. There's nothing in me that warranted God's love. In fact, I was rotting in my sin when God reached down to demonstrate his love for me. Listen to this. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. It's a well-known verse. That's how we know God loves us. And we'll talk about that even more in a little bit. That we should be called children of God. That, the word that, right there, denotes the purpose or the result of something. John is saying that God's love for us was the means by which he would call us his children. If he did not love us, he would not have sent his son, and therefore we would not be called children of God. The love is the means by which he can call us his children. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. And, you know, this makes sense. And Jesus has actually said that, and it's recorded in John's gospel. And we'll talk about that more in a little bit as well that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know, that word is gnosko, is an experiential knowledge. The world does not experientially know us because it did not experientially know him. He was not of the world. He came into the world, but separate from it. It reads like this, therefore, the world does not experientially know us because it did not experientially know him. Verse two, beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Okay, verse one told us about God's wonderful love and how that should motivate our obedience to him. Verse two and three tell us about Christ's promised return and some events that are going to happen during that. Christ's return is also going to inform how we live and it'll inform our obedience to him. We have this hope that we shall be like him. And although we are still image bearers of the Almighty, we lost something vital when we fell to sin. We lost that close communion with him. There was something fractured. We fell out of communion with God. But in a foreign kind of display, he reached down to us and he demonstrated his agape love by sending his own son to die this gruesome death. It is by this substitutionary atonement that we will be raised as he was raised. And we know that Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. And while we eagerly await this resurrection, we continue to toil in this corrupted world. And we can't presently see him as he is in all of his glory, the way that 
He wants us to see him yet. Moses had to hide in the cleft of a rock as God's glory passed by. Now, we're going to venture into a little bit of science, and I'll let you know when we're coming out of it so you can tune back in. But we possess three spatial dimensions and then time. So we, we live in four dimensions, but we're going to focus on the three spatial dimensions. God necessarily, he has to possess greater dimensionality than we do. Um, he's not bound to his creation. He is outside of that creation. It's just a necessity because he's the creator. And since we can't conceptualize greater dimensionality very well, we'll look at lesser dimensionality to get this idea across. Now, imagine that we've drawn a stick figure. We'll make it a pair of stick figures on a piece of paper. We'll call them Mr. and Mrs. Flap. They're madly in love, but they suffer from a condition. They only inhabit two dimensions. Now, imagine that they turn and look at each other. What are they going to see of the other one? Just a line. There's no depth there. So when they look at each other, they see each other as a line. While we, possessing one more dimension than they do, we can see them as they actually are in their two-dimensional glory. Okay, so God, possessing more dimensions than we do, we can't see him as he actually is. In fact, I can't even see you as you actually are. We have to see, we have to experience the world around us in one less dimension than we actually inhabit. Just like they see each other in one dimension, we see each other in two dimensions. I can't read something if you hold it behind your back. Can you tell how many fingers I'm holding up? Unless you see it in the reflection, no. I'm holding up two fingers. And if you saw me in three dimensions, you would know that. But we experience each other in two dimensions. Now, okay, we're coming out of this. Now, when we see God as he is, that means that we will be inhabiting more dimensions. That's pretty cool, okay? Um, That is something to look forward to. We will be set free from this bondage of decay that is currently just ravaging the world. We will be set free, and we will get to spend an eternity seeing him as he is. That is cool. Listen to this. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when the corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Amen to that. And this is great news. It means that we're not always subjected to the toils to the death, disease that we are subjected to now. And no doubt, we are subjected to that now. 
Um, each one of us feels it. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. The return of Christ should inform our obedience to him. Verse three, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins and in him, there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Now again, John is speaking of that purifying influence of the expectancy of Christ's return. Those who have the hope of his return will purify themselves just as he is pure. And this is in preparation for meeting him and seeing him as he is. Verses four through eight talk to us about Christ's death on the cross. John gives several reasons why Christ was made manifest, why he came into the earth. First, to reveal the Father and enable us to fellowship with him. And we saw that in 1 John 1, 2, and 3. Christ was made manifest to take away our sins. Verses 4 through 5, to take away our sins. And Christ was manifest to destroy or annul the works of the devil. We'll see that in verse 8. The last one is in chapter 4, verse 9, to reveal God's love and bestow God's life on us. Now back up to verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. John here is giving us one of the best definitions of sin that we have. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is breaking God's law. That's what it is. And make no mistake, God has set laws over his creation. And it's his right to do so. As the creator, you can set laws over something that you have created. The breaking of those laws is sin. And sin carries a hefty penalty. We know that the wages of sin is death. And that's a penalty that was paid for by Christ. How sad is it that people go through life and they reject Christ and they end up spending an eternity separated from him? There's no need for that. The work has already been done. The work of Christ has paid for everyone's sins. The weight of the world was on his shoulders. And there's no need that anyone should perish. But unfortunately, people do reject that gift. Jesus died for all men. And the will of God, we know from Scripture, is that all men should be saved. But tragically, some do reject that gift. John isn't saying that those who are born again don't ever sin. In fact, back in chapter 1, he says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar 
and his word is not in us. So he is very much on board that, man, everybody sins. He even goes so far as to say, if you say that you haven't sinned, the truth is not in you, and you make God a liar. So that's not actually what he's trying to communicate here in verse 4 and 5. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Obviously, even Christians will occasionally sin. The difference, and this is the key, the difference is the fact that sin is no longer your default setting. When you were in the world, sin was your default setting. You couldn't help but sin. You couldn't help but disobey God's law. But when you were born again, you were indwelt by the Spirit. Now you live for the Spirit. You're no longer living for the flesh. You no longer have to sin. When we sin as a born-again believer, we sin because we want to, not because we have to. The first sentence of verse 6 can be read this way. Everyone who in him is constantly abiding is not habitually sinning. Let me read that one more time. Everyone who in him is constantly abiding is not habitually sinning. And that's the root of what John is saying here. He's saying if you are abiding in Christ, If that's where you place your roots, you will not be able to comfortably sit in a life of sin. You will not be habitually sinning. Look at it this way. You just asked Jesus to be the Savior and the Lord of your life. You've been reborn. And you can no longer enjoy the sin that you used to enjoy. It no longer gives you the same satisfaction. And besides that, you just feel downright guilty whenever you're doing it. You can't enjoy that experience anymore. The Spirit is convicting you that what you're doing is wrong. It's not that you can't sin, but the Spirit won't let you live comfortably in that sin. Think about it. Do you live the same way today? that you lived before you were saved. I hope that you can say no. That's a good sign. You're no longer habitually in sin, but you're being pulled back to righteousness when you slip up. And that is what happens. John wrote, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Again, John is conceding, yeah, we sin. But when we do sin, we have an advocate. We have a lawyer in Jesus, and he fights for us at the throne of God. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. 
For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Again, we're talking about a habit of sin. We cannot make a habit of sin if God's seed remains in us. For if his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. This is talking about the new nature within. And it's talking about how this new nature informs our obedience to God. This is number four on your list. The new nature within. Um, That will actually continue through verse 18. Verse 10 now, in this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. I'm going to read verse 10 in Kenneth Wiest's translation. Uh, It gives us a better idea of the tenses used here by John. So verse 10, in this is apparent who are the born ones of God and the born ones of the devil. Everyone who is not habitually doing righteousness is not of God. Also, the one who is not habitually loving his brother, other Christians, with a divine and self-sacrificial love. And that fleshes it out a little bit more for us. Anyone who is not habitually loving his brother. There's all times. I mean, everybody has experienced a time when, you know, I don't really like him right now. But if he's a Christian and you're a Christian, you have something in common. And you should be loving him even if he did something to hurt you, even if he's wronged you in some way. You may not like him, but you should love him as a brother in Christ. He's saying that this new nature in us dictates that we love one another. And that is the same message that was given by Jesus from the beginning. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. In John 15, 12, Jesus is recording, recorded as saying, This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. And again, this is speaking of agape love. It's self-sacrificial, and it looks for nothing in return. Anyone can love a brother that has similar interests, likes the same things. You find something in common with somebody, your first thing is, hey, that's pretty cool. He likes the same thing I like. And you can love him based on that. But this agape love, it it doesn't look for conditions. It doesn't matter whether somebody likes the same things you do. And it doesn't even matter if they agree with every little theological detail that you agree with. If they are blood-bought by Christ, as we are, that should dictate our love towards them. Now, this 
agape love was not demonstrated by Cain. We see the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. Cain slew or slaughtered his brother Abel. Why? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. He was jealous. Jealousy got the best of him. Now, I want to point something out that I thought was pretty interesting. There are two main words used for wicked in the New Testament language. Um, There's a couple more, but we're not going to be concerned with them right now. The two we're comparing are kakos and poneros. Okay, kakos is a wicked that is just generally miserable, evil, and content to live and die that way. Kakos. Poneros is the the word for evil that's used here. Um, Cain, who was of the wicked one. Wicked one is poneros. And this is a wickedness that's not content to just live and die that way, but it wants to drag everyone and everything with it. It is a different kind of evil. It's sinister. I'd point you towards the story of Job. Satan killed Job's family, had his house burned down, and left him sitting in a heap of ashes with his wife telling him to curse God and die. This is evil, but he wants to take everyone with him. It says in our text this morning that Cain was of, ek, it means out of, as a source. Cain was out of the wicked one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Jealousy. He was jealous of him. Abel's offering was accepted while Cain's offering was rejected. Cain was jealous that Abel's offering was accepted. But look at this. We can't look to religiosity, to religious acts, as an evidence of our new birth. Both brothers were religious in this instance. Both brothers brought a sacrifice to God and the one true God. Abel offered a better sacrifice. Cain was judged because of his sacrifice. It was not accepted. Cain was jealous of Abel. Cain was obviously of the wicked one, out of the devil as a source, because he slew his brother. Verse 13, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. In John 15, verses 18 and 19, Jesus says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So since the world is not our source, the world is not our home, the world hates us. 
And we can find, I guess, a little bit of comfort in knowing that this is not a surprise. The world hated Christ when he was on the earth. Before he was on the earth, they hated him. Um, It's interesting, if you look at the cults that are around today, nobody teaches the, the cult members how to refute Buddhists. They teach them to refute Christians. Because this spirit of Antichrist that we talked about last week denies that Jesus is the Christ. Everything is aimed against Jesus. The powers at play in those other world religions know what's up. They know who the Son of God is. Even the demons know that. And all of their resources are pointed towards defending themselves or, you know, poneros, dragging everybody with them because they know where they will end up. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And this passage in John was pretty self-explanatory. The world hates us because we're not of it. And we shouldn't be surprised by this. Verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. (coughs) Now, loving the brethren isn't what causes us to pass from death to life. But loving the brethren is an evidence that we have passed from death to life. And this verse would have been read and understood by the Greeks to be saying that we've passed from the death to the life with that definite article in front of death and life. The death, an eternity separated from God. The life, an eternity with God in our glorified state. And we know that we stand to inherit this life because of the love we have for other Christians. It's an evidence that we, in fact, are heirs. Verse 15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Matthew 5, 21 and 22, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And here in our passage this morning, John is echoing what he first heard from Jesus, from that passage in Matthew that we just read. Jesus was saying that murder begins in the heart. Hate is an inward thing that presents as an outward thing, murder. So every sin starts in the heart. If you remember, James, the brother of Jesus, wrote, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. A thought is replayed over and over in your mind, and eventually it turns into an action. The heart 
gives birth to sin. And this verse is saying, whoever is habitually hating his brother, if you live a lifestyle of hate towards other Christians, it says that you are a murderer. And this is cause for great concern. Whoever is habitually hating his brother is, and literally it says, a manslayer. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We know love because we've experienced Jesus laying down his life for us. The know used here is gnosko. We know love. We have experienced love. In this experience of Jesus laying down his life for us, that's how we know that God loves us. Whenever in scripture God wants to prove his love for us, he always points to the cross. He doesn't ever point to someone's circumstances. He points to his son on the cross. We don't know God's love because he gives us a nice house or a nice car, even a great spouse. That's not how we know God loves us. It's not by circumstances. It's by something that has already been done. By this, we know love because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. You know, Jesus commanded us. Love others as I have loved you. Love others as I have loved you. We also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren and demonstrate that same type of love that God has extended to us. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? James in chapter 2, talked about faith and works. He talked about how our faith should inform our actions. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. With true faith comes works. And those works are the outworking of a faith that is alive and well. The works don't save you. The faith saves you, but saving faith is accompanied by works. If that agape love of God abides in you, then you would have no problem helping a brother, even if he could not repay you. Self-sacrificing love. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. This is John's way of saying, talk is cheap. You know, put your money where your mouth is, so to speak, but with actions, not money. Agape love is sacrificial. And it looks like something. 
Love is not an emotion. Love is an action, and it's a choice that we make. We have to choose to love someone. And truly, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. You can try to minister to someone all you want, but without actions flowing from that love, you're a clinging symbol. And I can tell you, if somebody's talking forever, I know it's ironic, I've been up here for about 45 minutes talking to you about talking. If I'm talking to someone forever, but the way that I live doesn't match up with what I'm saying, they are not very likely to listen to me when I'm talking to them. They're just not. Because being humans, we love to see something confirmed. If you're telling me something, I want to see you doing that. If I want to learn how to become a millionaire, I'm not going to talk to someone who's broke. I'm going to talk to a millionaire, right? And when we put it that way, it seems very obvious to us. Talk is cheap. Let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Let your actions match the love. And by this, we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. Now, as Christians, we should consistently be cultivating assurance, assurance of our salvation. We should be more sure of our status as a child of God tomorrow than we are today. And that's just a healthy relationship with Christ. Peter wrote, Therefore, brethren, Be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. And verse 19 in our text assures us that as we sincerely love the brethren, we belong to the truth and we are saved. You can also reference verse 14 that we already talked about. Even assurance is not left up to feelings. We know that salvation is not left up to feelings. And we can know certain things. The truths are presented uncompromisingly in 1 John. He does not compromise. And if you look at it, there's no black and white. He says, if you are not of God, you're of the devil. If you are not with him, you are actually against him. No black and white. Over and over, John uses the phrase, we know. And we see it five times just in chapter three. We know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. By this, we know love because he laid down his life for us. And by this, we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. And we'll read in just a moment that by keeping his commandments, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. 
five times John uses the phrase, we know. And that's encouraging to me because the assurance of my salvation is not left up to how I'm feeling on a certain day. The assurance of my salvation is based on truth. It's something that we can know. And by this, we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Now, unfortunately, we don't always love the brethren as we should. As Christians, we're called to love other Christians. Sometimes we don't do that as well as we should. This is where our heart or our conscience sneaks in to try to condemn us. But John helps us out by pointing away from our feelings and pointing to the God who knows us. He knows our hearts and he knows the struggles that we face. And I thank him that salvation and my assurance of salvation are not based on the feelings of my heart. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Verse 21 promises that the Christian with an assured heart can pray with boldness or confidence. If there is sin in our hearts, then we can't pray with that same confidence. The psalmist in Psalm 66, 18 and 19 writes, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But certainly God has heard me. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. And so the Holy Spirit convicts me of the sin in my life, and I'm able to confess it. And that allows me to come back into fellowship with Christ, with God. The secret of answered prayer is obeying God and seeking to please him. By doing so, by obeying him and seeking to please him, we abide in him. And when we abide in him, we may pray with power. However, God is not our genie in a bottle who is obligated to grant all of our wishes. That is not who God is. Richard J. Foster said it really well. And he said this, prayer involves transformed passions. In prayer, real prayer, we begin to think God's thoughts after him, to desire the things he desires, to love the things he loves, to will the things he wills. When we abide in him, we ask for things that are coherent with his will. That will be the orientation of our heart. And if we ask according to his will, we can be confident that he hears those prayers. Also note that John here is writing to believers. He's not writing to a general audience. He's writing to Christians. Jesus, when he said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire 
and it shall be done for you. When Jesus said that, he was talking to his disciples. He wasn't talking to the multitudes. It was a very specific group that he was addressing when he said that. And those verses get taken out of that context fairly often, especially in the more liberal sides of Christianity. And they try to paint God as this genie in a bottle when that is not who he is. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. That's a prerequisite for the aforementioned promise. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Verse 23 gives us one of those commandments being referred to in the previous verse, verse 22. The command is this, believe on the name of Jesus. And the idea here is that we should be living a believing life and be habitually loving each other. That sounds wonderful, doesn't it? And truth be told, a lot of problems would be solved if everyone acted this way. If everyone was habitually loving each other, if everyone believed in Christ, we would live in a different world. These two things should sound familiar to you. Believing on the name of Jesus and loving one another. In Matthew twenty-two forty, Jesus was questioned by the Pharisees regarding which of the commandments was the most important, the greatest commandment. And he answered them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. These two things, when done as Jesus did them, fulfill the law and the prophets. All the commandments that John speaks about in his epistle are summed up in these two things. Believe and love. The faith that you have should be accompanied by love. Verse 24, I want you to pay attention to the capital letters in this verse. It helps us uh, when sorting through all these he's and him's. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. This last verse in chapter 3 tells us about the witness of the spirit. And that's the fifth point in that list that we mentioned at the beginning the witness of the Spirit. The big idea in verses 19 through 24 is summed up here in verse 24. We can know that we are saved because the Holy Spirit abides in us. The Spirit bears testimony that we are born again. The Spirit is a down payment for the inheritance that we haven't received yet. 
we're in line for it, but we, we are not seeing currently what we will be. But the spirit is a type of down payment for that inheritance. We look forward to that union when we meet Christ face to face. And this is exactly what we were talking about at the beginning of our study. When we finally see him as he is. Now, to conclude this morning, God abides in us by his spirit. And we ought to abide in him by yielding to the spirit and This looks like us obeying the word. If we are yielded to the spirit, we obey the word. People who claim to be born of God, but who repeatedly disobey the word and have no desire to please God should examine themselves to see if they are really born of God. If you have no desire to please God, if you don't care about keeping his commandments, examine yourself. That is cause for a heart check. Um, Lay before the cross. Pray. Ask God to illuminate the things in you that are dark. John wrote that God is light. In him there is no darkness. If we are to abide in him, there should be no darkness. And certainly in him there is none. Don't leave this morning with something unresolved in your heart. If you can feel the tugging of the Spirit this morning, man, lean into that. Don't leave and ignore that little tug. If the Spirit is tugging on your heart, respond to it. That is the the biggest encouragement that I can give you this morning. Lean into that inkling. We'll wrap up our study there this morning. Um, If you would, just join me in a word of prayer.